Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among the people of the east. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Thus ends the reading of God's word. In C.S. Lewis's allegory, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it tells the story of the Pevensey children. These children that are brought into this magical land of Narnia. This is a well-known story. I'm probably not telling anyone anything they don't know, but in this story, these four children encounter a wicked witch. They encounter talking animals. And on their journey through this land, they are conducted to Aslan, who in Lewis's story represents Jesus. And Aslan is this lion. And when one of the children, Susan, hears that they're going to meet a lion, she says this. She asks one of the beavers, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Later in that same story, Lewis describes Aslan as not being a tame lion. Lewis was trying to capture the reverence, the awe, the power and might of God. This is why Job, and especially Job 38, is one of my favorite stories. Because in it we see the power of God. In it we see his might and his power, and in it we see a God who's not so tame. In our day and age, I think you would agree with me that we have tamed our God. Maybe not necessarily in our church, and our denomination, but the world itself has. A God who will be there for whatever we want him to be. Will function in whatever way we want. Or maybe even a conception of God is like a punching bag. You can say whatever you want to him, you can do whatever you want, and, and he'll, he'll just he'll sit there and take it. Now again, there's an, there's an element of that that's true. We have a loving God, we have a patient God, we have a long-suffering God, and we see that in the book of Job. But to quote Lewis, our God is also not a, a tame God. 
He's not a God without reverence and might and power. It's humbling as fallen creatures to read the book of Job because here we as suffering individuals encounter an answer, and it might not be an answer that we really like. It might not be an answer that we want to hear. And we'll get to that as we go through, but as you read through the book of Job, you might find yourself on Job's side. We just read that he was this blameless man, and then all these things happened to him. What's going on here? Doesn't he have a right to complain? Well, what we see through the book of Job is that the wisdom of God is the answer in suffering. The wisdom of God is the answer in suffering. It might not be what we like to hear, but we'll see as we go through that that's exactly what we need to hear. That's the most comforting answer we could receive. And we'll see that looking at the dilemma of the book of Job, the error, Job's error, God's answer and Job's response. The dilemma, Job's error, God's answer and Job's response. But the book starts out in an amazing way. You might not have noticed it as I read it, but I'll read it again. In chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The Lord says to Satan, Where have you come from? And the answer was, He was roaming throughout the earth. And then the Lord says to him, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. He's blameless. Who brings Job into this trial? Who schedules him for this conflict? Well, it's God. Satan's roaming the earth, and God says, Have you seen Job? Take notice of Job, this blameless man. He, in essence, says, Go after him. See the honor in that. Job is this, this man, this ordinary man, and yet he's the subject of a conversation between God and Satan. And Job is God's star player. He's the latest star player in the contest of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And we all know what happens. We read it. Job goes through some of the worst suffering that's ever been recorded in literature. Losing everything he has. Losing his very health. And his response to all of this is, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Shall we not have bad things happen? Job doesn't fall. Job doesn't sin. Job doesn't blame God in the sense of saying that he's no longer going to trust God. Job's wife had said, curse God and die, and Job says no. He remains firm. Well, then, shouldn't this be a short book, right? I mean, okay, you have this dilemma, this happened, Job stands firm, but why are there so many chapters following this? And that leads to the dilemma of the book of Job. And we want to be clear that Job never curses God, and Job doesn't forsake him. But there is a dilemma. There is an issue that's being fought in the book of Job, and it's two-sided. You have a, a principle in play a principle of God, an idea of the way God acts that is incorrect. And we see this in Job's friends and in Job himself. We could call this the retribution principle, that punishment is given to those who deserve it. That the wicked, those who do wrong, will be punished. God will punish them. Bad things will happen to them. But the righteous won't experience that. The righteous will experience blessing. That's the principle that certainly Job's friends 
are obeying and living according to and, and, and putting God in that mold, thinking God answers in that way. Thus for them, Job must have sinned. They believe that God is righteous. They believe that God is just, and he is. Well, when they're functioning according to this principle, that means then that Job must have done something to deserve this. And so that's the first error. That's the first misperception. But the second misperception, the second problem that the book of Job is dealing with is one that Satan brings. You see, people in that time, we ourselves still today, often fall into functioning according to that principle. That if we do good, we'll be blessed. Or maybe if we don't think of it in terms of worldly blessings that we'll receive gifts, we think we'll be okay. We think that, by and large, bad things shouldn't really happen to us. Well, Satan comes and takes that principle and flips it on its head. And he says, yes, Job is blameless, but is he blameless for no reason? God, you've so blessed him, you've given him everything. He was the most rich man, the most blessed man in all the East. Of course he'd be faithful. Take all that away, and he'll forsake you. So you see the dilemma here. You see that Job and his friends are functioning under, well, bad things can't happen if I'm being obedient. And Satan is saying, if you keep blessing them, how do you truly know that they're blameless? How do you truly know they're righteous? And thus undergoes the book of Job. Thus Job goes through this trial. Job is trying to pick up the pieces. God hasn't provided him with any answers. And so you see the book of Job tackles the question of human suffering and shows that the answer to it lies in answer in God's wisdom. And why God and how God answers these dilemmas. This leads to what Job's error is. Again, I mean, Job is a blameless man. God himself has said this. Well, what's the error? You think of the book of Job as like a boxing match. This might be helpful. You have these two heavyweight champions that are going in the ring, and it's Satan and Job, God's star champion Job, and they fight, and Job wins, because Job doesn't forsake God. And yet, everything that happens after that is the boxer back in the locker room, bruised, bloodied, and injured, and wondering what just happened. Wondering, why did I fight that guy? What, what was the deal there? Because then Job's friends come up to him and say, you did wrong. You sinned. And so now Job has to defend himself amidst all of his suffering. And his error comes in when he seeks to defend himself above defending God. When he seeks to vindicate himself at the expense of God, when he questions God over much. When he starts asking questions of God that go too far. When he starts thinking that God must have acted unjustly, and if not, then he has done something that doesn't make sense. And he wants an answer from God. Job's friends still hold that the trials must be due to his sin. Job says it's not. Job is right. When we say blameless, of course, we don't mean he was sinless. But we mean that he walked blamelessly before the Lord. He was a sanctified man. He walked in obedience. He sought to glorify God. And he didn't commit some sin to warrant this. 
He was living a righteous life. So Job is right. But then how do we atone for this? This is a question we all ask. How can, if you're living righteously, how can bad things then happen to you? Again, the answer is the wisdom of God. In Job's distress, he begins to believe that God must have forsaken him or is uninterested at least. God isn't functioning fairly to him. And so we see that Job's error is very real, very much so our error. If you think of it, you probably don't think like, do I question God and, and think, yeah, he's being unfaithful to me. I doubt you would say, yes, God's being unfaithful to me. But if you think of a trial that you undergo, how often have you thought, I just want to understand why God is doing this. I just want to know what his purpose is here. It doesn't seem to make sense. It seems beyond what I deserve. What's going on? Questions that we all have. One commentator said this well. He said, when we ask, why me, we are in effect asking, how does God work? We may start out asking why we deserve this, but ultimately the question we arrive at is, what kind of God are you? In all of our difficult experiences, eventually we arrive at the place where it is no longer us, but God who is on trial. It's exactly what we see in the book of Job. Job says it in Job 13, verse 3. He says, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. One of the great things about the book of Job is it's so real. If you place yourself in his position as this man who has lost everything, these are the questions you would have. These are the questions that we do have. You see this, this tension in Job. Nowhere expressed more than in chapter 13, verse 15. Job says this, Though God slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Though God slay me, I will hope in him. See, he's not rejecting God. He's not forsaking God. Yet he wants a trial because he's going to argue his ways to his face. He's calling God to account for himself and his actions. And there is a danger. We don't want to commit the danger that I think some do in looking at Job then as a failure throughout the book. And that's not the way we should look at it. We should look at Job as a righteous man asking questions that every Christian asks and wrestling with those questions amidst deep pain and sorrow. We would ask of ourselves, do we feel this way? Do we question God and do we want him to give an account for what he's calling us to go through? We didn't want it. We don't want to go through this. Why? Answer, your, answer us, God. That's what we want to say. And Job is saying the same thing. I want a trial. I want a hearing. Come and answer. And the amazing thing about the book of Job is that he gets it. God comes to him. Job has sought to vindicate himself rather than God. Job says that he is blameless and hasn't done anything wrong. And his only real goal throughout the book has been to defend himself. Again, I'm not saying that because I don't think Job is a worthy man. He's far too human. But he is a righteous man. And so God comes. And this is where we will read our text this evening. Job 38. 
What we see in this chapter, beginning at verse 1, is what Lewis described as not a tame God that appears here. Not a God that just comes and bows down to Job's will. No, a God who comes in greater wisdom. Beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth, Tell me if you know all this. And that's where we'll stop. And the chapter goes on in a very similar way. You see, Job gets his hearing. God comes to him, but then what does he hear except, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? It's a chilling thing to hear, isn't it? Who is this that darkens counsel? The book of Job is wisdom literature. The 37 chapters that preceded this show a lot of wisdom. Job and his friends, the way they talk and speak, much of what they say is absolutely correct and true. And in the book of Job, you sort of have a contest going on between Job and his friends on who's wiser, who understands God more. And you would be able to say that Job defeats his friends in this minor conflict. This show of who's wiser. Job is. Job's wiser than his friends. He understands God more than they do. And then God comes and says, you know nothing. Is that the answer that we want? Is that the answer when you're facing trials and hardships to say, you don't know, but I do? On a surface level, no, that's not the answer we want. But on an ultimate level, that's exactly the answer we want. Do we want any other answer than God coming to us and saying, I am wiser? We understand it as readers of the book of Job. We see the whole picture. We see what went on in heaven. We see the conversation between Satan and God. Job didn't see that, and the trial that came to him was the exact same way the trials come to us, suddenly and unexpected. Job, throughout the whole book, never receives an answer. He never gets one, other than, I am wiser. 
Who are you to question me? Who are you to vie with God? Is your wisdom like mine? You see, Job can't answer the basic questions of creation, the basic functions and working of nature. God, in essence, comes and says, if you want to bring me to trial, prove it. Prove that you can. I'm not trying to paint God in a petty light. I'm trying to paint God, as the book does, in an awe-inspiring light. God answers Job out of a whirlwind and a storm. He comes in the might and power of his creation, and the hearing begins, and it's not a hearing that Job expected. We see the wisdom of God, though, don't we? Job, unknowing to him, has one of the most honored positions any man could have. Hand-selected to be God's champion and suffering servant to Satan himself. One that God was going to uphold the whole time. Satan was never going to defeat Job because it was God sustaining him. Job doesn't know this. Job doesn't understand. And you see, we as finite creatures, when we question God in this way, this is the answer we need to hear. Not that we can't ask them at times. There are so many psalms of lamentation which virtually say exactly what Job does throughout the book, but we can't stay there. We can't stay in thinking that God owes us an answer. People of God, God has never promised to give us an answer for everything we go through. He gives us the ultimate answer. He gives us the ultimate answer that everything works out for our good and his glory, and is that enough for us? Now you see the humility it takes to accept that. You see the humility that Job needed to say, you're right, I overstepped, I asked things I shouldn't. So God's answer of telling Job how little he actually knows, how the wisdom of God is the answer to our suffering, is enough for Job. God asks, who do you think you are to harbor these questions? God tells Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Dress for action like a man. I am God, who are you? Again, this is a very encouraging answer to us. God doesn't come in punishment here to Job. He comes as a father correcting him. He says, you are asking these questions, but you can't. I have it covered. I know what I'm doing. And again, here we sit. Having much more knowledge of what went on than Job did, not only because we see the whole book of Job, but because we see what God's wisdom really is. If the dilemma of the book of Job is questioning, how can a righteous man suffer, is not Jesus the prime example of that? How could a righteous son suffer? Job bears many similarities to Jesus. Job is called a blameless man, as Jesus was a blameless man. Job is hand-selected by God and placed before Satan to suffer as a suffering servant. Jesus was the prime example of a suffering servant. Job actually appears at the end of a book, the book as a mediator. Job's friends are told by God, 
If you want me to forgive, you ask Job to ask on your behalf, and I will forgive you. See, Job serves as this mediator, just like Jesus was. Jesus is the wise answer to all human suffering. Because the answer to the book of Job is that, yes, a blameless man can and will suffer for God's wise purposes. For Job, it was to defeat Satan. For Jesus, it was to defeat Satan and save us. This is where the book of Job leads. This is the answer. This is why we can put all our trust in the wisdom of our God. For the answer is Jesus Christ. When we face our trials and sufferings, can we question the wisdom of a God whose plan was to come down to earth himself and bear all of it? The answer is no, we can't. The answer is no, we wouldn't want to. Job, in his small-scale battle with the devil, depicted the much larger battle between Jesus and the devil, where the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And this leads then to Job's response. What does this result in? Chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God's answer that I am wiser was sufficient for Job. Is it sufficient for us? It really comes down to trust. Do we really trust that God is wise enough to know what to do in our lives? I like to think, and I think this is most likely, that Job went to his grave never knowing. The book never tells us that God finally explained it. Job died with no knowledge that he was a single player and an agent in this cosmic battle. And yet what you see here is the answer we all have to have when we strive to be blameless and righteous people. No, we trust in God. We trust in your wisdom. The end of the book shows that suffering ultimately leads to blessing. That might sound somewhat familiar. It might sound like the retribution principle. Because on an ultimate level, the retribution principle is true. When God comes again, the righteous will be blessed, the wicked will be punished, and that's it. It's a principle that won't be violated, but it's a principle that isn't carried out yet. Maybe in stages and ways. If you live holy and upright, you will be blessed in many ways. Even materially, you can be blessed. But don't confuse the ending material blessings for Job as what the promise is. If you're faithful and you suffer, God's then going to bless you on this earth. What those blessings are indicating is the final, ultimate blessings that we have in eternity. You can see that in the fact that everything Job receives is double what he lost. It's illustrating that these blessings 
are eternal blessings. Yes, Job would lose his wealth again when he died, but it's showing that the double blessing that the suffering servant Job received is the double blessing that we receive in Christ. Because to the suffering servants of God comes ultimately blessing. And you see once again, this is why we trust in our wise God. This is what gives us that hope. And we only can respond with then praise be to our wise God. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this wonderful blessing that we see in the book of Job. We see that you are wiser than us. And we respond in humility to say we thank you for your superior wisdom. We pray that we would learn the, the lesson, lesson of the book of Job, that we would trust in you. Lord, sometimes we will bring our requests to you, bring our questions to you, bring our lamentations to you, and wonder why we are going through what we are. But we pray that what this would lead us to is in further faith. What this would lead us to is again to your son, to know that he is the answer to why we suffer. We suffer for your glory. We suffer to fulfill your plan, just as Job did. Even in our smaller scale battles, so do we. And we thank you for that, but we pray that you would sustain us, for we know our own weakness. And we ask the wisest of all beings that you would give us what we stand in need of. And bless each one of us with that as we seek to obey you and run this race that we are on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.